Shumai, hello. Welcome back to the podcast. You can become a patron of the podcast, get access to all the podcasts before anyone else, and get some free shizzle and uh, exclusive event invites. You can do that by signing up to become a patron uh, at patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts. Patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts. Thank you to all my patrons. They are a, a growing group and uh, they are genuinely a source of uh, a great source of advice and guidance on all things to do with the podcast. Um, I, I, I seek out their advice on, on different directions and different areas quite regularly and I really value their feedback. So um, become a patron. Yeah, cool. Um, also, thank you to those guys, but also thank you to the sponsors of the podcast. Sponsoring the podcast today are Veteran Trees. Veteran Trees are veteran-owned. They make bespoke pieces out of wood, bespoke gifts for maybe promotion for, or maybe not a gift. Maybe you want to get something in the alley, something cool to go on, on the wall of your bar or in the mess, in your clubhouse, in your office, in your home. They make, I say they, Dan does all this. Dan owns Veteran Trees. Dan's a veteran. And he makes all these pieces, all right? He does anything from coasters, placemats for your coffee cup or your whiskey glass like i have in the studio i've got four custom made customized uh coasters that i use for my whiskey for my bottles for my coffees for whatever i'm doing and the, and the guest uses got four of them they've got the h hour branded in the front of them and one of them's got a, a bottle open on the back anything from coasters right up to whole flipping tables right so he'll make you a tabletop out of wood and it will have i don't know what's the word it will have carved into it whatever you want Okay, that's how good he is and how awesome the products he can do and supply are. Like, he's just done a piece. You have to look at his Instagram, right? On Veteran Trees Instagram. He's just done a piece and it is a Welsh dragon carved into the wood. Okay, he has done pieces for SBS. He's done pieces for Power Edge, the RAF, Submariners. He's done pieces for, for Bootnecks. Uh, like I said, coasters, tables, military plaques, whatever you want. He's going to make it out of wood. You're going to get something made out of wood, alley, like your cat badge, for example. Yeah, or you could, I don't know, get like a plaque with someone's name on or with X, Y, or Z on there, right? And hang it where you want to hang it, put it where you want to put it, give it to who you want to give it to. They're perfect. I will be getting more from Veteran Trees, 100%. They're the perfect gift. Probably like you, I like to support veteran-owned brands and companies. And also, I, I love ninja craft work like this okay so um yeah take a look on his instagram it's at veteran underscore trees on instagram but you cannot definitely do that right but you can also you can email him directly email down at veteran trees for any inquiries you got and you can do that uh, by uh, emailing veteran trees at outlook.com simple but get on instagram i'm telling you look at the stuff he does it's flipping awesome really cool kit really cool stuff that he does and i'm definitely getting more yeah cheers dan for sponsoring the podcast or veteran trees for sponsoring the podcast and for the coasters i should say my missus got me these coasters for uh, the 100th uh, episode um of the podcast and i am extremely pleased with them they're really cool i'm, I'm literally holding my hand now looking at it <laughs> i'm talking yeah cheers veteran trees at veteran underscore trees on instagram also sponsoring the podcast today are the Aardvark Group. The Aardvark Group have a, uh, they employ a, a, a vast majority, vast majority? Yeah, I think the majority of the company is ex-military. If not, there's a, there's a big percentage of the company are ex-military. They support the military community. They work in uh, in in uh, areas that uh, a lot of ex-military and military do. They deal with post-conflict areas predominantly. And Aardvark, they 
clear unexploded ordnance and um and legacy mines and, and mines in minefields that have, have basically been left there from past conflicts. They've been doing it since 1982 when the Aardvark group was founded. And when they were founded, they had uh, the South assigned task of, of meeting a design criteria for something that would clear mines and unexploded ordnance effectively, which the founders of Aardvark considered to be the prime critical factors. So they wanted the, the clearance of all known anti-tank and anti-personnel mines and they wanted to be able to locate, identify, and dispose of all other munitions and unexploded ordnance. And they went about that. They concentrated their design capabilities on the landmine clearance process, which would best suit the post-conflict and humanitarian clearance and chose a rotating chain flail system. They also explored the possibility of using various commercially available vehicles for the role of prime mover, but, but they found that they all had the shortcomings, and so they designed and built their own. Um... And to meet the needs of the military combat role in minefield breaching, Aardvark has cooperated with manuf manufacturers of main battle tanks and armoured personnel carriers. And they've designed flails which can be added to these vehicles, these machines, as a minefield breaching device. It was, after all, a, a British invention to put a flail on the front of a World War II main battle tank for use in the liberation of Europe. The consequence of Aardvark's design philosophy has been to produce the most effective specialized vehicle for the destruction or detonation of landmines while permitting that flail system to be adapted for attachment to a minefield breaching machine. For more than five decades they have developed technical innovations which support operators fighting at the front line of conservation and the protection of natural resources using the principles of detect, protect and defeat you can find out more about the aardvark group at aardvark.group or you can follow them on social media they're on twitter they're on linkedin they're on facebook and they're on instagram they're everywhere man the aardvark group get them um just look for the aardvark group twitter they're at, at aardvark underscore cm charlie mike and on instagram they are at the underscore aardvark underscore group thank you to david st john claire and everyone at aardvark the aardvark group for supporting the podcast and for supporting the wider military community finally sponsoring the podcast today are rugby for heroes rugby for heroes are a not-for-profit organization who raise money for military charities they've been doing this for over 10 years and they they were founded in the wake of the death of private joe whitaker who was sadly killed serving on operations in afghanistan with the parachute regiment in 2008 rugby for heroes was founded in 2009 and they have raised over £110,000 for military charities since they were founded. They started off um, organising one event a year, which was a rugby festival held at Old Clementonians RFC in Warwickshire. One amazing all-weekend event uh, in May that would happen. I'm, I'm lucky enough to have been to a couple of these events when I found out about Rugby for Heroes. In fact, I found out about Rugby for Heroes because I was supported uh, through Rugby for Heroes and through um, charities that they uh, they fundraise for um, and that's how I came to know of Rugby for Heroes uh, I was actually one of the uh, beneficiaries at a very difficult time and so I'm hugely grateful and hugely supportive of Rugby for Heroes and the charities that they support um, and I'm lucky enough to have been to a couple of their events early on before this flipping pandemic and I intend to go to every single event they do in the future hopefully fingers crossed that's the plan they're really good events uh like I said they're rugby centric uh, but they also now do well they've done a beer engine festival in the past and they do supper clubs 
COVID put two fingers up to all of Rugby Heroes' plans to have in-person events, okay? Um, but Mike Valance and everybody at Rugby Heroes, they want to get things underway again as soon as as soon as it is allowed. Um, they are planning an online event uh, while they wait for people to do in-person events, be able to do in-person events again. They are planning an online event the details of which will be published on their social media. So you need to follow them um, on social media. So they are at Rugby Number Four Heroes, Rugby for Heroes, Rugby Number Four Heroes, yeah, on Instagram and on Twitter. Definitely give them a follow. And their website is rugbyforheroes.org. Uh, yeah, thank you to Mike and everybody at Rugby Heroes for all the amazing work you've done over the last 10, 11 years. Uh, hang on a minute. 10, 11 years. What am I about? 2009. It's 2021. 12 years, man. 12 years. Get your maths together, Hugh. 12 years. There we go. Support Rugby Heroes. And uh, thank you to Rugby Heroes for supporting me personally and also for sponsoring the podcast. Cool. On to the podcast. My guest today is Tara McLaughlin. She served with the RAF Regiment during the 80s and 90s, served in Northern Ireland and Germany. And... Uh, and since leaving the military, she transitioned from uh, male to female. And uh, yeah, she now works in the satellite communications industry, Internet of Things, IoT, Business Ninja, Military Ninja, Life Ninja. Uh, real pleasure talking to Tara on, uh, on all the topics we covered. Um, military, the... Uh, uh, the, the transgender topic which um which is uh becoming i think more mainstream in terms of conversation and pro positive progress going forward and societal acceptance and discussed it all i really enjoyed it she's a great lady and you will enjoy this too this is the hr podcast my name is hugh Keir. i'm a guest today is tara mclaughlin enjoy Recording Tara, so where we are now. So absolute pleasure to finally make it work. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. So I, I've got I've got a quick question before we kick off because your your setting is in, is very intriguing. Looking at all the stuff on the walls and that, but the flag, right? That to me immediately looks I like a Iraqi flag, but it's not an Iraqi flag. What is that flag? No, yeah. it's it's um, the supper fest. It's kind of uh, a set of training videos. Um, and it's basically a fictional country called Suffolandria. And I sit on that survey trainer when I'm not out on the road and watch the videos and train. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of because I've got one metal knee and waiting for another new knee, so I can't run anywhere. So at the moment, it's, you know, kind of stuck in here on the survey trainer. It's the only kind of fitness I get. Um, and don't even quite see it was behind my shoulder as my punch bag. So I said, punch things and ride my bike. Which is pretty cool. <laughs> On the subject of running, you just reminded me, Paul Gadonis yeah. said to ask you about going for a run in Barcelona. Going for a run in Barcelona. <laughs> I don't know what he's on about. <laughs> so, um, yeah, going for a run in Barcelona. So Paul and I were over in Barcelona um, at one of the, the IoT events in Barcelona uh, a couple of years ago. And I promised they'd go for a run in the morning not realising we'd be out drinking until kind of 3am. So 
went for the run, got up, pulled text me for WhatsApp me, and I was like, oh, God, the run, forgot about the run. Quick, get kit on, um, tied the hair back, downstairs, went for the run. We lasted, both of us last, I don't know where it was, 15 minutes, 20 minutes maybe, probably not even that actually. And I arrived back in the hotel and proceeded to throw up violently and go back to sleep. <laughs> so yeah, so I had to phone Paul and apologise, and you know, it's kind of at the event, you know, about ten thirty that morning. But yeah, it was, you know, but a promise is a promise. You know, if you promise to go for a run, you go for a run. I suspect it really involved drinking when he mentioned that when he mentioned the story. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. um, a lot of drinking. yeah, Megan Avion, Megan Avion. So you are second Raffredge soldier to have on the uh, on the podcast. And that, that disgusts me that I'm the second one, Hugh. <laughs> Mind you, uh, uh, you look at Tom's story that, you know, when you've done that, uh, you know, that, that podcast, that, that was just fantastic. He's a, an absolute top lad. And um, I think, you know, what, what that guy's been through. And, you know, I think it positions kind of the mentality that comes out all, of the Rough Reg. You know, I, I joined the Rough Reg um, in the very early 80s, you know. Uh, it was just uh, one of those things that when I, when I kind of joined up, it was, um, for reasons that we'll probably talk about later, uh, I just had to get away from home. I just had to leave home. I was 17 years old. I, you know, borrowed a shirt and tie because I didn't own one um, off of a, a, a friend at school. I walked down Queen Street in Glasgow where all the recruiting offices were. We, I went into um, the army, talked to the guy about the powers, went into to the Royal Marines, because it was separate from the Royal Navy then, um, went into the RAF um, and talked about the regiment. And uh, it was really quite strange that I got sort of positive vibes from all of them. I was um, on an elite athletics programme in Scotland um, for schools, county uh, and country. Um, so, you know, I was pretty good at athletics and, uh, yeah, the area of regiment was the one that said, you know, come and join us first. So I you know, signed up to Ralph Reg and, uh, not even know where it was. I had no idea. I came from a family that, um, had no military background and nobody in the family was in the military at all. Uh, I guess the closest we had was my, my old man who was in the merchant Navy, uh, and spent years and years in the merchant Navy. But it was just one of those things that, um, for various reasons, I just had to get away from, from, from home, from the family life. And, you know, back in, uh, gosh, uh, 81, it was kind of the only jobs going. You know, work was hard to get. Um, and I was really pleased when, when the, the RAF offered me a position and off I toddled, uh, late 81, down to RAF Swindaby to, to start my basic training, which was, you know, for me, it was kind of, get away from stuff and, and just try and do something that was a little bit different. Um, you know, if I, if I wind back just a little bit, I knew I was different when I was three years old. You know, it goes that far back in, in who I am. Um, and I think, I think it was about four. I might have just been five. And this stuff that goes around inside my head, so well, why am I, why am I different to everyone else? You know, what's wrong with me? And that's this, the real sense that I had that something was actually wrong with me. 
I was different, but I, I had no idea, absolutely no idea what it was. Um, I knew that I felt more like a girl, but you know, no internet, late 60s, there was no information, there was nothing to, to compare this to. And I had absolutely no idea that, you know, being transgender, as we, we call it now, back then it probably called transsexual, even existed. No idea whatsoever. And actually, strangely, it's one of those things I, I loved, I've always loved travel. And I was watching a program, you know, we're always sat in front of the, the TV in the house. Dad was at sea, um, you know, mum, my, my brothers, my sister were there. And we were watching um, Alan Wicker. And he was doing this program, this intro program from San Francisco. And he was in the gay district in San Francisco. And I was sat, you know, cross-legged, my little dressing gown in front of the TV, watching this. And all of a sudden, I seen this thing in a TV that was basically a guy in San Francisco that had transitioned to being a woman, um, had surgery in the US way back then, and the penny dropped. It was like, you know, a four, maybe early five-year-old having that eureka moment that realized what it was. And it was just, it was, it was actually, you know, when I think back on it, um, it was enlightening. It was just something that enabled me to anchor all of these feelings that I'd had for the last year or so down. And people think it's strange that how do you know when you're four? How do you know? Um, but I just knew it was just there all the time. Um, and that was kind of where the whole problems started for me. That's where the challenges became in. Do you reckon that, uh, see that, do you reckon that it's quite unusual to, uh, to, to have that clarity of, of, not the issue of yeah of the of the source of the sort of discontentment if you like that and that, and that young because I don't think it's it, I don't think it's unusual um, and, and many other transgender men and women that I speak to are have had some feeling for a long time um, some don't realise until they're you know into late teens early adulthood and even later. Um, I think there are a, a proportion of people who are transgender realize when they're that young and they actually know. But again, back then, you know, what could you do about it? You know, I lived in a, a tenement block in Glasgow. You know, it was in the 60s. You know, we, we didn't even know what gay people were in Glasgow in the 60s. Certainly, you know, my family had no idea. Um, and, and it was something that's really quite strange to to finally realize what that was um but i guess being being quite you know then quite an enthusiastic kid of course the first thing i did the next morning was run into the kitchen and tell my mum that i was going to be a girl and you know that went down kind of like the you know the proverbial lead balloon you know cats out the bag and showed them, you know it's a phase you know you're being stupid all of those things but you know you just couldn't shake that off it just kept, it was always there, always in the back of your mind. And if I can almost say it was kind of like this thing, it just, it started to grow. 
Um, so the, the, from your words, you used discontentment. And it wasn't about discontentment. It was, why am I different? Why this? And then that thing starts to grow out and it gets bigger and the feelings get stronger and stronger. And by the time I had reached um, sort of, you know, 10 years old, I, you know, I was absolutely refusing to get my hair cut. Wouldn't do it. And, you know, again, you know, early 70s, Glasgow, all of the boys then trot back inside. That was the only haircut you had. There was nothing else. That was it. And I've got this sort of, you know, mop of sort of brown, gingery, reddish hair that um, I wouldn't get cut, refused to get it cut. Um, and that kind of then starts to single you out. So you go to school and, you know, people are picking on you. Um, I wouldn't say I was bullied, but it's that kind of, you know, you were always singled out as being different. Um, and so much so that, you know, mum and dad finally decided we're going to give up living in Glasgow and went back to where my family's from, um, um, out in Strathlachlan, out in the west coast of Scotland, uh, which took me from being in a, a big, busy city to a fishing village of a thousand people. And, you know, that kind of thing, just at that point in time when I was moving schools, moving from you know, primary school into, into secondary school. And huge challenge for me, which left me with no friends whatsoever, um, nobody to talk to, nobody that I could ever confide in about how I felt. It was the, the kind of dirty, open secret in the family, if you like. And, and that itself caused some issues at home. And I guess that's kind of where that led me up to that moment of saying, you know, well, screw this, I'm going to join the military. And uh, as I said, I had no idea. You know, you've seen, uh, you know, the, the paras and, and I think just about that time, just before that time, more in point had just happened, uh, the IRA disaster um, over there. And you've seen it in television. And I think it was just probably the year after that, I'm not sure if that was 79, 78, 79 or something like that then, but the year after that we've seen uh, the Rainy Embassy siege on TV. And that was it. So my whole mindset was get rid of everything you felt and you know, wrap it all up, put it in a box, forget about it and go and become this you know, soldier. So, uh, and that's what so you to, to the regiment. So you, you, you basically saw it as unachievable, as in, Living a living as a, a woman, you then oh, you, yeah. you saw it as unachievable. So you, you were trying to reset reset things by joining up. Is that what that was? Exactly that, and it was this kind of this whole reset stuff, um, and taking it from, you know, I, as I said, I was already, I was I was quite good at sport, being picked up for elite sports programs in in Scotland, um, you know, it was the only outlet, the only outlet I ever had. I'm quite sure that. You know, comparing um, it to today to some of the, the issues and challenges, mental health challenges that some of our, our veterans have today and serving soldiers. One of the escapes is exercise. It's about going out there and, and pushing yourself as hard as you possibly can. And from, from then, from starting doing that when I was probably 11, 12, until I transitioned six years ago, the only escape I had, the only time that my brain was quiet was when I was running or cycling or exercising or doing something that was different. Um, and, you know, you, you become quite good at it. 
So I became quite good at, you know, at running. Um, and as I said, that's why my little tour of the, of the recruitment offices, I think I probably went around all the offices at the, either the end of 1980, beginning of 1981. Um, and it was just that point of waiting to get picked up. You know, even the forces weren't really recruiting then. There was, you know, very few intakes coming through, etc. But then I got the letter um, and off I went to the military. Joined up. The whole idea of forgetting all about Tara McLaughlin and just being this, you know, the best soldier I possibly could be. Yeah, joining at wild times as well. You mentioned Warren Point there, you know, what was that, 16, 16 two-power guys killed? Yeah. Was it 16? 16 was not I think it was more than that. I think it was, not, I think it was about 22 in total. Because they had the, the, the first device went off and then the second device, which caught um, the QRF force as it came out. Um, so, yeah, it was, you know, and I guess one of the other points when, when I joined the, the, the RAF, as my mother seen it, you know, we walk around in a blue uniform. I didn't even know, you know, um, and it wasn't actually until you, you arrive at Catrick, which we'll chat about in a moment, um, that I, even I realised exactly what this was. I mean, you see the recruitment movies, um, you know, I'd seen people abseiling out of helicopters and fast roping onto you know, whatever they were doing, etc. And it was really that element of it. But, you know, none of us, I didn't realise that I would end up, you know, fairly early in my career over in the province. Um, I don't think anybody really did. You know, if you joined the army or you joined the Paris, you know, back in, you know, 81, 82, you knew that would happen. You knew you'd, you'd, you'd have a tour. Um, but I had no idea. And even as a, you know, even at basic training, no real idea of, of where you were deployed, et cetera. And I think it was because kind of part of me didn't want to do any of that. I was almost all the way through uh, basic training was just looking at the here and now. Um, and the one thing that really, I think, pushed me along is the fact that I always thought that people could see what I really was. It's almost like they could see inside me. Um, and that kind of pushed me to you know, drive pretty hard in, in everything that I did. You know, if I wasn't you know, top of the class, if I wasn't the fittest, if I wasn't the first out in the run, you know, if I wasn't top of the gym tests, whatever else we were doing, I always seen that as I failed. And even though I wasn't naturally, I think, competitive back then, um, it was that thing of always wanting to be there first, always saying, well, I'm, I'm the best, I'm the most macho guy here. Because I was afraid if I wasn't, people would see straight through me. Um, was it also you trying to pull yourself to that, that you trying to pull yourself back to that, um, you pull yourself away from uh, the, you know, wanting to be a woman? Was that was also was it also that trying to police so, trying to kid yourself on kid yourself on exactly that you know and and that was exactly it. it's like you know kid yourself on that that doesn't exist and you know, don't get me wrong I, I wasn't having a bad time I had an absolute blast during basic training I mean how many recruits do you know that go through basic training go this is brilliant I love this because <laughs> I could forget about you know wanting to be a woman I could forget about my family life back in Scotland and I could forget about everything. And you're just there, one of the lads, having a right, you know, 
you know, good old time. Yeah. Everything that we did, I, I, I absolutely enjoyed. There was nothing that you didn't enjoy about it. Uh, I can't remember how long we used to be at Catrick for then. And I think it's probably the same as it is now. It was about 20 weeks, 18, 20 weeks at Catrick after your basic Air Force training. Um, and yeah, you know, it was a blast. It genuinely was. I, I enjoyed it so much. And I guess it, you know, time I finished there and, and um, spent a little bit of time on, on pool flight because there was nothing much to do and, uh, until you got your posting to your squadron. And then, you know, off you go onto your squadron. And uh, yeah, life during that time was, was a blast. It was great fun. When did you deploy? So you got to, you got to the squadron in, two, uh, in 1982 then? Now, I got to my, I got to my squadron, yeah. So actually, yeah, because I'd finished my basic training at the end of 81 and went on to Christmas leave, left that, and went on to, to I actually went on to pool flight first. Um, and I was working at that time down at, um, on support helicopters. So I get on to support helicopters and I was there for, I think about four months in total, five months, um, with a little thing called the Falklands, um, in there as well, because that had obviously started not long after I finished, um, basic training. But once all of that calmed and we started getting our postings through again, I was, um, toddled off to, to one squadron, um, in Germany. So I was across in uh, Aria on, on one squadron. Um, at that time, we were just in the transition period between being um, Land Rover based field squadron and getting in our light armor. Um, so we had uh, you know, that sort of transition phase, which again, you know, thoroughly enjoyed my time out there. It was a, an absolute blast um, until somebody then deploys you to, to the province. Uh, which is, you know, again, you know, I think I mentioned this in a chat previously that the service that, that I had, I feel it was, um, it was quite benign. You know, we were Cold War soldiers. There was nothing much going on. You know, um, if, if you didn't get uh, uh, revolved through Northern Ireland, you know, you, you didn't do anything. You know, we, we trained, we trained, we trained. Um, but, but that was the extent of what all you did. There was nothing else going on, really. Um, and it was, you know, it was, we had, we had a great time. We had a blast. You, you say it was quite benign. Weren't you, you were caught up in that incident in the Netherlands, weren't you? When um, the, the IRA attacks over there. Uh, so the, the IRA attack, so that, that was, it was actually you know, tragic. Um, I wasn't on one score, and I'd actually been posted back already onto into the UK. But um, my, my son um, from my first marriage lived in Germany and lived, in, in Vitsa, which is the, the village side of Arifalabu. Um, so we were over there um, doing uh, some of that, uh, or I was over there um, visiting my son. Um, we went out that night, a whole bunch of lads went out that night. And yes, very, very sadly that uh, you know, the, the um, machine gun attack down in Romont and the um, car bomb um, it destroyed the car um, of, of some gunners in uh, Laubruch. And that, that incident, I think, really sent shockwaves through the regiment completely. We had, I think we had lost a couple of guys in Northern Ireland previously, but I think they were both RTAs, um, to my knowledge. Um, but we've never lost anybody. And that night, um, you know, we lost three guys that night. 
in one night. And it was a coordinated attack between um, the, the machine gun attack in Romond and the car bomb in, um, in Norbergen that, that uh, took their lives. And it was, it was a real shock. You know, as I said, I keep saying benign in my service, you know, when you compare it to uh, what some of you guys went through, it was very benign. But then when those things happen, it kind of, everyone realized that, you know, no matter who you are, where you serve, you know, service is not benign. It never is. And, you know, the, the amount of, of grief that that instant caused across the regiment, across the whole regiment. And then we were, I think the regiment was still probably 12 squadron strength. And I was How big is the squadron? Um, 160 altogether. Yeah. Um, so, you know, even back then, you know, I, I think if my numbers are correct, the regiment was still, it was, it was core strength. It was a, it was a core. Um, we had, we could probably have deployed between anti-aircraft, uh, rapier, uh, low-level air defence squadrons and field squadrons. Um, I think we could have probably deployed about 2,000, just over 2,000 force strong. Oh, that's massive. That's um, massive. Yeah. And when we think of, out of that, there was six field squadrons of light armour. So, um, you know, out of that, then we could have deployed, you know, kind of, yeah, it would have been battalion strength, mech, armour, mech infantry. Mm. I mean, you, you say that it was a benign time, very, very strange time to live in that, to, to live in, one, to live in the UK, and two, to be serving. Like I, I, when I joined up, I was, it was the, that paranoia around checking under your vehicles and all, and all that sort of, yeah, not, not paranoia, not paranoia, but that uh, diligence, safety diligence that you would conduct just being in the UK, which, and, and uh, that was sort of on the on the draw down, really. But you know, it was uh, again when I joined early, early two thousand, about two thousand, I joined, and and, he, and it was then you you know you didn't wear uniform outside of camp, you know, you didn't advertise that you were in the military for fear of getting pinged by you know IRA or one of the other flipping groups over there, and and an attack, and you've been targeted for an attack and. And so you go back 10, 15 years to when you started serving, that whole issue was going on. You know, we, we talk, this is the thing with information these days. We really quickly forget how flipping batshit crazy things were not very long ago. Those attacks you were talking about there, <clears throat> and people who don't even know about them, you know, that's IRA <laughs> attacking British, British personnel in Germany, mainland your terrorist attacks in Germany, you know, and, you happened, and it was happening in the UK, Birmingham, London, Manchester, crazy times, but not long ago, not long ago at all. It was, and I think one of, one of the other incidents that happened just before that, um, and I can't, I should be able to remember the guy's name, but um, the IRA um, took out um, an RAS corporal in his car and killed his baby. I don't know if you, you remember or you, you've got any recollection of seeing, uh, it was one of the guys off of, I think, he, I, I can't remember which squadrons, I think a regiment gunner, probably off of QCS at the time, so 63 squadron, um, carrying this little white coffin in the front of all of the newspapers. And it, it was, I mean, it was, we went through, um, used to go through NITAT training, 
So down at High Limit Ranges, where you used to have all of the Northern Ireland simulations, um, you do your riot training, you do your urban warfare training down there, sorry, um, your, your counterterrorism urban um, down at High Limit in the training area. And, you know, you'd leave there, you'd go and do your tour of Northern Ireland. Um, I was kind of lucky, unluckily lucky, if you like, because we only served at, well, as far as I'm aware, we only served at either Aldergrove or Bishop's Court. So Area of Aldergrove, so your TOR was all around um, Aldergrove, and Bishop's Court, which is in County Down, down near Downpatrick. Our TOR, and I was out there at least twice at Bishop's Court on tours, um, your, your TOR extended into the edge of Downpatrick, down into Ardglass, Strangford Loch. Um, and again, relatively benign until we had, you know, the Downpatrick bus bomb that killed a whole bunch of Scottish wives. You know, and it's, and you're, you're right, we, I think of it as benign because it wasn't, you're not in firefights every day. But at the same time, it is, it's that checking on your vehicle, making sure the kids get to school safe, you know, all of those things that, you know, you weren't, you just weren't sure. Uh, and I remember in, in, with a couple of other attacks, I think it was 86, maybe 87, and all of the RAF regiment squadrons were split up and deployed across a number of different bases. I mean, I ended up at RAF Valley in Anglesey, um, up there. And, you know, our key role at that point was, uh, especially as NCOs, is making sure that the rest of the Air Force were up to date in their weapons training, that, you know, the, the, all of the car checks, the security, the safety, the searching, all of that kind of stuff is, is part of the job that we did on a regular basis. Um, but it's, you know, it kind of, it came to that time, I remember coming back uh, from my last tour in, in, in Northern Ireland, which was, I think, ended probably about November 89, I came back. Um, and it was my first tour over, over in, in Northern Ireland as a, as a full screw. Um, came back from Northern Ireland and I had to come to the house to tell my wife that we were posted. Um, I, in, in the regiment then, uh, or the whole of the Air Force then, unlike the Army, you get individual postings. So you'd be lifted from one squadron, you go to the next squadron. And uh, I remember coming in and my wife was sat there and I said, oh, sorry darling, but we're, we're posted. And quite funnily, um, my wife's ex-husband was with Army. And so she spent a lot of time in Germany. I'd spent a lot of time in Germany. And uh, when we came back, um, I sat, sat her down and said, they were posted up. So I'm not going back to Germany. I am not going back to Germany. I said, no, I'm going to Cyprus, actually. Um, which, you know, was a holiday. It was brilliant. It was absolutely, you know, you get there. And yet, even there, um, before, actually before I arrived, um, 34 squadron out in Cyprus were dealing with incidents where terrorists were trying to get on the camp. And, and they were firing um, AKs up the beach. Um, so I guess even though it's benign, you still have those small bursts of different things going on within your life. But I mean, it, obviously it wasn't Afghanistan, it wasn't even Iraq uh, in the early 2000s, nothing like that. But it was enough to make sure that as a soldier and as a regiment, um, you know, you did you took things seriously. Yeah. What was, um, what was the general feeling, if you can remember back, around, around the whole island piece? Um, was it, 
yeah what, what was what was the consensus around that with 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 your experience within the military like what, because it, the reason I ask is a long old campaign very long campaign and and obviously the sentiment changes over time with different things it did with Iraq did with Afghan what was it like there what was your opinion on it all it's it? actually quite strange um after I left the military one of the companies that I I've, I spent quite a lot of time working for um, was based in Belfast um I should mention that both my sons were in the military um Scott uh was um, RGJ, so he was robbing jackets, and he spent a lot of time out in the province. And um, uh, he was in, in Kosovo uh, very early on in, in the conflict in Kosovo. And then Ryan was RTR. Um, but my, my kind of, I didn't really understand what was going on, I understood what was going on in the province, obviously, but you didn't understand the, sen the real sentiment. And it wasn't until I went back post Good Friday Agreement, you know, and I was stunned to see police cars with police written inside of them. Because when I was out there, everything was unmarked, everything. Um, and then working for a, a, a Northern Irish company, you get to know people who were talking about the troubles and you know, what it was like for them on both sides. And I think the, the overarching feeling that I got was that the, the people of Northern Ireland were genuinely, completely and utterly fed up with everything that was going on. They genuinely were. But that's, um, that's not to say that, you know, there, there's complete peace in Northern Ireland even today. I mean, I was out seeing my, my grown-up son and his family only a few years back. Um, they live in, in um, Dunmurray, or did then live in Dunmurray, just outside Belfast. And we came home from a club one night to find uh, a place for a block because um, one of the lawyers factions had crucified a guy in a road sign. Literally crucified him, hung him, nailed him to a road sign. And so when you see that kind of thing, you understand that even though the troubles and the British military involvement is finished to all intents and purposes in the province, I think there's still that underlying political and social instability that's still there today oh yeah definitely definitely and um my mother's irish uh from she outside dublin show oh god i'm glad she doesn't listen she killed me for forgetting <laughs> exactly where she's from but um uh but yeah it is even now this stuff that stuff goes on it just doesn't get reported on over here there's no interest for it but like you said just the, the sheer the actual violence but also that that underlying sentiment that underlying unrest like you know we've got the, the set up the rugby club forces barbarians and we we look you know a military club and we're looking at playing different matches around the uk and we've had the idea of very briefly had the idea of going going to Ireland and have a match in Ireland. It's like, no, nah, just not, don't do it. You know, and, and that was our sentiment. And that was the advice. It's like, don't, don't go to Ireland as a military team to go and play a game over there. Because even now, it's just, you just, you just cause, cause problems. It's the risk of violence and stuff against us. And you think it's 2021, man. It's, it's you know, madness. When I joined up in 2000, my mum lost, lost some really good friends because I had joined up. 
Um, and not only that, I joined Power Edge, which obviously is not loved. Yeah. <laughs> it's not loved over there. But well, where is it loved? Um, yeah, and uh, she lost good friends, just completely disowned her because uh, they saw it as saw it as as a as a, as a, as a traitor, basically allowing her son to join at the British military. Um, and that kind of thing still goes on today, you know, still goes on today. Um, yeah, really, really strange times. They were really strange times. And I, I'm glad that I got to experience Northern Ireland when I did. It was nothing, again, there was nothing going on like when you were out, when you served Northern Ireland. It was, it was benign when I went there. Um, but I'm still like, I'm glad I got to experience a military operation on UK soil. <laughs> You know, it was really strange. And I look back now at some of the pictures, and it's God, does it make me feel old? You know, I see you know people patrolling um, in, in, in berries, but still patrolling, and you've got these old fashioned flat jackets on. You're 58 webbing in SRs, you know, and didn't even have high leg boots, it was like DMS boots and putties. And that's what it was when I first went, you know, it was just that was the that's what you had. Um, and I think it is, it's quite strange when you look back at, at history generally. I mean, I've been out, I left, um, I, 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 I signed off late 96 and my sort of date actually the force was early 97. Um, and I was, so I spent just over 15 years in and the, the transition that I've seen in 15 years was, is nothing short of remarkable. You know, going from an old steel helmet, which we were given, a 58 pattern weapon with a backpack, which was your standard issue kit. I mean, you know, it didn't take long. Uh, it wasn't long after the Falklands um, when we started to get a lot of new kit come through. The weapon was the same, but we started to get bergens and, you know, the, the first issue Kevlar helmets came out and stuff. But then right the way up to just before I left, and we were getting all of the, 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 the very latest kit coming in. Um, and I remember obviously transitioning from SLRs onto the IW, you know, to the S80. So it was just that that whole period of almost of going from to all intents and purposes something that was practically Second World War kit. I mean, we could train, when I was in basic training, we could train an LNG, the Ren gun. And I noticed a, a tweet the other day that you sent, uh, this picture, this, what was it, you sent, somebody sent it, and there's a guy, Second World War, the Ren gun, on a mound of rubble. You know, and you, you think, that's, you know, I was trained on that when I joined up. It just makes me <laughs> feel really, really old sometimes, it really does. But it's, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, where, where the extent of, of, of my military service went. You know, I've done some other, you know, pretty cool things as well. We, we went uh, a lot of this kind of venture training, whether we're in Belize or um, lucky enough to go over to, to Brunei and, you know, Canada, Norway. So, you know, there were some interesting things that, that you were able to go and do. Um, but yeah, it kind of, for me, it culminated in the fact that I had to make a decision at some point in my life to leave because I knew that this, you know, what you see now would, would eventually start to take over. And, you know, I'll be very honest, my mental health was starting to suffer. I was, you know, becoming aggressive when I didn't need to be aggressive. I was also becoming um, a little bit, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Um, 
you know, if something had happened to me, I, I stopped caring. And that's, that's really quite sad, despite the fact that, you know, mm. I, I had a wife and three kids. Um, reckless, I think is what I'm looking for. I started to become a little bit reckless. Um, out of frustration. Yeah, just out of frustration and, you know, the way that I felt inside that was starting to, you know, you can only, with, with anything, and I don't, I wouldn't say for one second that being transgender um, is specifically a mental health issue. It's not, it's absolutely not. But it impacts on your mental health. And it's one of those things that, you know, this old black box syndrome where you got your little black box in your brain, you stick something inside it, you lock it shut and you leave it there. I don't deal with it, I just left it and left it. And eventually, you know, at one, some point, this thing's going to escape. You know, it's going to get out and it's going to, you know, have a real impact on your life. And that was kind of when, um, you know, I sat down with Kerry and said, look, I'm going to have to leave. You know, I'm just going to have to get out of the regiment. I can't stay in here forever. Um, because I think you also need to remember that time, it would have been, I wouldn't have been able to transition. They'd have thrown me out of the RAF anyway, probably with a less than honourable discharge. Um, you would have, you know, if I'd come out as transgender, then at any point in the 70s, because I think the first transition in the RAF, I'm not sure about the army, was, was um, Caroline Page um, in 1999. And even that was a year before the, the rules were relaxed to allow openly gay um, and lesbian service people to serve then. But then you've got to remember as well, even if I had transitioned, even if I stayed in and transitioned, I couldn't have stayed in the regiment because the regiment didn't have any women. You know, we, we, we had the first female recruit. I, I'm not sure if it now if it was 2018 or 2019. So 2019 or 2020, I think it's 2019, we had the first female recruit in the regiment pass out as a gunner. You know, and that's, that's, that's the kind of progression that's happened, which is, you know, it's fantastic to see. But at the same time, for me, it would just, it would just have come too late. Why did, why did you, so why, oh, no, no, you've already answered it. No, no I was going to ask why, why, and I'm confusing myself. I was going to ask why you left, but no, I think, I suppose, the, what's, what's, I, it seems to me at that time, get your words out of you, at that time, over that 15 years you were in, it must have been, you must have seen that, maybe it didn't, that it, things were becoming more socially acceptable in terms of, no? No, no. It's, it, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, being transgender, even today, I would not describe being transgender as generally sociable, sociably acceptable. It's a lot more acceptable than it was. Um, we still don't have equal rights, despite the fact that people say, well, of course you get equal rights. You know, if I die today, my birth certificate says male. No, that's not an equal right. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's still not really socially acceptable. I think the social acceptance started to improve dramatically in the late sort of 2008, 9, 10. There was more 
positive stories about transgender people coming out. There was more transgender people appearing um, positively in the news. Um, you know, I'm, I'm first, I remember watching Boy Meets Girl, which was a, a fabulous um, transgender actress, uh, Rebecca Root. Um, and that was the first thing seen on television, with a transgender person playing a transgender person on television. And I think that was, I think Boy Meets Girl was either 2014, 2015. So, you know, it kind of, even when I first came out, I could, I don't think I could have worked um, as a transgender person. Um, I mean, I was, I was really quite lucky because when I, strange enough, when I first came out, um, or actually while I was still in, my, one of my things that I really enjoyed was combat medicine. So I really, really enjoyed combat medicine. So I paid for myself, I think it was 88, 89 to go and do an advanced cardiac life support course, an advanced trauma life support course um, up at the North Staffs um, Royal Infirmary and with a company up there who provided training um, specifically around, around those particular things. Uh, you know, went and done my intubation cannulation training at Luton Dunstable Hospital because of, uh, because of where I was stationed at the time. And, you know, I really, really enjoyed that. So when I left, I was going to be a, I was going to be a paramedic. That's what I wanted to do. Until I discovered that I would earn less as a paramedic than I would have done as, a, as, an, as an NCO in the, in the, in the regiment. Um, and it, kind of my first job when I left was I went on to uh, work for a company um, based out at um, Terminal 4 at Heathrow, which provided um, the, I wouldn't, this is not close protections, so that's not what I did, but they provided skilled drivers um, to chauffeur celebrities um, from the airport into London, driving around today and bringing them back to the airport again. And so that was my first job. And I could never have done that as a trans, it just wouldn't have been acceptable as a transgender woman. It just, you just couldn't have done it. Did, um, did the mother of your kids ever cotton on? Did you, that, what, what your intent was or what you wanted to, how you wanted oh. to live? Oh, no. so, so here we go, because I'm just chatting, I've missed a huge piece of very important piece of information. Um, <laughs> I've, Karen and I have been together for 35 years. This year we've been married 33 years. I told Kerry about Tara on date three. Uh, hang on, hang on. So she knew from the very beginning of our relationship that I was um, transgender. We didn't have a label on it then, Hugh. There was no, no, it wasn't a nice painting that said, this is what I am, I'm transgender. It was, she knew that I prefer to be a girl. Day three of meeting her? Day you three, told date, date three. I wasn't saying day three, no. So we had three dates. On the third date, I told her. I sat there I, to you to know. Ah, I didn't, I didn't realise. I thought you'd got divorced. I divorced my first wife. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, the bush my first wife. My, my first wife, I married her when I was in Germany, 83, had a son by her, and that's the son I was out seeing in, in Germany in 88. Um, yeah, no, we get the vote because of this as well. So, because she knew um, in the relationship, and it's not something, I, I think a lot of people do and can hide it from their partners, but it's not something I could do. I just couldn't have hidden it. You know, from somebody you, you, you've married, you love, you, you, you can't hide that sort of thing from them. Um, so, so they knew. First wife didn't really accept it. There was you know, a couple of other things about we were both really young when we got married. Um, 
that carry and that carries no one since 1986. How did that, how did she receive that information on date three when you broke that? What was that? Well, I, I would have loved to be a fly in the wall. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, I think that exact was where, so. Literally, she, there was no, Amazing. no drama about it, really. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's been dramas through the journey, but there was no dramas then. Obviously, you know, it, it was something that, um, you know, it did when the kids became aware once they're older, uh, it impacted them quite a lot. Even though I hadn't transitioned and I hadn't planned to, <laughs> it impacted the, the, the kids quite a lot. Um, but, you know, now it's something that is just, it's not, it's not even a discussion point. It's great. And I'm, I am genuinely, genuinely so lucky with you know, the four children that I've got, you know, the, uh, my daughter's fiance, my, my, my three daughter-in-laws, and it's, you know, they are really, really absolutely cool with it. But it's, it's, a, it's been a journey to get to this point. Yeah, but uh, when, we were, when we were spoken about this before, I think it, what, um, what I, when you talk about it, what I, what re, what I really liked when we first sort of had a, any form of discussion, discussion about it was that it, it seems to be that it has had an overwhelmingly positive impact on your life, transitioning. Yeah. Would that, yeah. It has, and it, it's, it's. I think it's that again. Is it's something that is. Um, I wouldn't say it's unusual for trans men and women to have that. Certainly, at the beginning, to have that overwhelmingly positive impact. Um, but I think I had gone through and addressed this with a, a, a very healthy perspective of reality and what reality was going to be. Um, I had some great people that, that, that gave me advice. Um, you know, it's, there, are, there are some things that really help. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the way people look specifically, but let me, let me you know, put something to you in terms of um, body language, NLP, the way you speak, the way your mannerisms develop from childhood is um, ingrained into you by your gender that you're born into. So the body language that, that men have is entirely different at a very subtle level to the body language that women have. And we can, you know, can nail that down to a few things, you know, how you express yourself, how you talk, how you walk, all of those things are um, ingrained at the very earliest age. And if you then consider when you transition, it, whichever direction you're transitioning, male to female, female to male, you've got that years of learned behaviors that you've got to try and unravel. Um, and some people find that much, much, much more difficult and challenging than others. And, and having studied you know, psychology and um, NLP, it's one of those things that I took to like, well, actually let's almost make this a project around how do you walk, how do you talk, um, how do you feel most comfortable in um, your, 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 your acquired gender 
and make sure that and, and a lot of people say well I shouldn't care what other people think of me and I don't but if you're going to go out and work in your professional life you need to be able to to still be professional whether you're male or female and you know I've never had an issue in my working life as you know um, whether I've been you know previously uh, before I transitioned just before I transitioned and then through transition in fact I've had nothing but hugely positive support from the employers I worked for since I transitioned and I, I kind of I think I put that down to um, having some great people around me having you know listened to some advice from people who've gone through this in the past and understand that but then to apply some of those things that say well actually if I'm going to be successful I need to be um, we use this term um, to pass as a transgender person, um, which means that you can walk down the street and nobody notices you. Now, I know for me that that's probably unlikely and, and that doesn't bother me in the slightest. Um, but, you know, we as humans know when a picture that's placed in our minds doesn't fit together. You know, it's like the guy with the long blonde hair walking down the road. Now, men will turn around long blonde hair in their brain, immediately associate that with female. But as soon as they look, they'll go, that something's not right there. Even if it's from behind, you can't see the face, you can't see anything, something's not right. But it's your brain in, intuitively understanding that the body language is not that of a long blonde haired female. It's the body language of a male. And once you start to, to unravel that type of thinking, you can then start to, as I've, I've tried to do, is adapt some of the behaviours that I have to become more female, not specifically in the way that I look, but more in the way that I act, my mannerisms, etc., and kind of adopt that, you know, as, as I say, just being Tara, rather than being my previous male self. Yeah, I, but, <clears throat> but I think it's... It it's not necessarily it's not necessarily the, the, like that attention is not necessarily negative is it it's just that no absolutely not it, you, we draw the things that are not not normal and when I, when i say not normal i mean like most people are are male we're born male in the male and most people feel and they're born female and they're female so just because it, yeah. it it falls outside of what the general thing is and also um um the, yeah it it i think it just takes time doesn't it for that 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 not to have that uh like the second look for example the, yeah. the double the double tick because it's things have definitely changed over time with 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 all sorts of things and on my perspective and my view and things has definitely changed since when I was younger. Um, because the, it just think people are more aware of all of the million different ways that people in the world can be, you know, and, 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 and what's okay. Everything's okay. As long as it's not criminal or violent. <laughs> right. Okay. You know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the, I think you're right. I think the societal norms are still there within specific gender roles, men and female. Um, and you know, I, I for one, even as a trans woman, I don't want to disturb the societal norms. What I do want to do is to 
be visible enough to allow people to understand that there is other things that are normal. You know, the fact that it is normal to you know, have a transgender colleague, that it is normal to have you know, a gay or a lesbian colleague. Um, that all of those things together are working towards becoming completely um, normal within general society. You know, if you'd, you know, even turn the clock back you know, 20 years to two gay guys wanting to adopt a child. You know, that just wasn't acceptable. People thought that was completely and utterly unacceptable. And yet today, nobody bats an eye about it. So I guess what, we're, what a lot of transgender people like me are working towards is that thing that says, well, actually, this is just normal. You know, I get up in the morning, I go to work, you know, I eat, I exercise, you know, just a normal person, walk the dog. You know, there's nothing different about me today. In fact, one of the, one of the best pieces of advice I got um, was from a director of a company that I previously worked for. It said, you know, everything will change, but nothing will change. So everything changed for me, but in actual fact, nothing has changed. Still got to go to work, still got to look after my family, still got to provide for my family. You know, I still got to do all of the things I did previously, but I just do it in a different way today than I did, pre than I did then. So it's about that taking things forward and making sure that even though everything's changed, actually nothing really has changed and nothing should change. You know, and you know, even within the transgender community, there's a number of people that they will consider different things normal for them. And you know, that's, we need to embrace that and, and welcome that. Um, and there's, there's, there's little things like, you know, has a transgender woman had surgery or not? Um, some people decide not to, some people decide that absolutely it's the right thing for me. Um, and you know, I, I encourage people to talk about those subjects. A lot of, uh, not a lot, um, a, a proportion of people who are transgender, absolutely, that's a, that's a taboo subject, don't talk about surgery. I'm quite open about talking about it, simply because I want people to understand there is differences in how people approach this. No, we're not all, not all cut from the same cloth. Yeah, that's that's one of the challenges with anything. I, th I think, isn't it, where you're trying to understand something new or unusual that was otherwise uh, um, you otherwise didn't know about, or was just like considered to be weird or what, whatever it is. Is that it, you? The more people know about it, whatever that it is, you know whatever it is you know you, you're, a, you're a bloke coming out as gay or whatever the more people understand information they understand about it then the the easier it is for people to accept it i think especially where especially where the transgender sub subject is as you mentioned there there is there's like there's areas that are considered absolutely completely outrageous outrageously offensive if they're mentioned like like um the like example the, the dead naming thing is one of them um yeah. the surgery thing is another topic and i think when you close off when 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 those topic or when the topics are closed off and there's a, a real heightened uh uh 
perception that it's really easy to offend someone. So I ain't gonna, I ain't even gonna ask any questions because people are intrigued. Like people, like naturally, like inquisitive. They think about that. You know, they they think about those things. Okay, how 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 does that work? Like we're talking right now. You journey from when you joined the military. Now it intrigues me. It's like, man, that's a, that's a really unusual journey, which is one of the reasons in the podcast. I'm really interested in it because I want to understand. And in having this conversation, I understand more about the challenges that uh, that people who are transgender face and will and will continue to face, and the things that need to be overcome. But when things get closed off, and it it, it puts people off from discussing that. It puts people off from oh, thinking I can go and have a conversation with Tara and and I can ask her a question. I don't have to worry about her getting offended about anything. But one of the things that, that I think I have, we can have that, I can have that conversation with you is because I know from your military background, you're a flipping open book and it'd be really difficult for me to offend you. And if I did, you'd just tell me straight up. You know, it's like, I can just, I can go marching anywhere. And if, and if I make a mistake, you're going to tell me, you know. Um, and that's quite unusual, I think, for us to be able to have this open conversation about it. What, what's, what do you, what's been, what is the challenge? What challenge, are there like un, unforeseen challenges that you have to deal with since you, what did you call it? T-Day, transition day. Yeah, since you transitioned. I think, you know, I, I, again, I've been really lucky because of the support that I've got. That, that's the key difference. And I think that, you know, a lot of trans men and women can have a, a, a fabulously successful transition. Um, having your family by the side makes that transition much, much easier. And I've been, I, you know, my transition has been fantastic. And really, you know, it's, 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 it, there, there are some things that are tough. You know, it is for me quite often when I, you know, you wake up in the morning and think, God, can I do that today? Can I actually, you know, get ready, get on that train, go to work? And, and there might be some instances that, you know, maybe the previous day in the train that somebody's been staring at me. Because it does happen. People do, you know? Um, and you might think, can I actually do that again today? But it's about that, you know, picking yourself up. For me, it's about picking yourself up every morning and going, yeah, I can do it today. Not only can I do it, I need to go and do it today. I need to do it every day. And um, so there are some things that, you know, that are challenging. There's, there's, at the moment, there's a, quite a big backlash against transgender women specifically, specifically in, in the British press. You know, there's um, a lot of things going about fact that why should I use a you know a, a woman's changing room or or a lady's toilet you know am I a danger to to young girls in toilets you know you you, you get this this crazy um notion that because we're um natally when I say natally being born genetically male that you know we do this because we want to go and you know invade women's private spaces I think there's, there's nothing, nothing further from the truth. Nobody goes through some of the shit that we have to go through, um, you know, mentally, physically, uh, just to do something, you know, what it is illegal anyway. Um, you know, so, so some of the things are, are challenging. Uh, you know, it is, it is a long journey here. You know, uh, I started physical transition back um, seven years ago, you know, in terms of uh, a hormone regime, 
in terms of um, uh, laser treatment and electrolysis and things like that. So you start, you, you start, if you make your mind up to transition, you start your journey. And at some point in that journey comes T-Day, the day that you go, okay, this is transition day. This is the day that I'm now going to um, present female at work and socially and all of those things. And for me, that, so that day, it, it's ingrained in me because every time I want my passport, the date the passport was issued is there. So it says, you know, Tara McLaughlin, Mrs. Gender Female. Um, so you get your passport and then you get your driving license and this is brilliant. But then we come up against some of the things that are still a real barrier for all of us. So within the Gender Recognition Act, um, we, transgender people, are allowed to, through a process of approvals, um, change our birth certificate. So it means that I can apply for a new birth certificate in the name of Tara with a gender marker as female. That process is bureaucratic. It takes time. I need, believe it or not, I need Kerry's written legal consent to do it. Because within the act, there's this thing called spousal veto, that some women stop their partner from transitioning. The legal part of the transition. You can't stop the physical transition, etc. And um, it can stop the legal part of the transition. So there's still some real inadequacies within the laws that stands in the UK today that can become a barrier. But you know, come back to your point earlier on, I think socially it is becoming much, much more acceptable today than it has been, you know, at any point in time. Um, and that's to do, I think, because we've had some, specifically in this country, we've had some fantastic pioneers that have gone before us. I mentioned one, Caroline Page, who transitioned uh, as an officer, a flight, an officer um, in the Air Force. Um, Isla Holden, um, who uh, transitioned again as, as an officer in the Air Force, and she's actually a, a helicopter pilot um, down there with the police uh, in Bournemouth today. So I think there's been some fantastic, very newsworthy, in the hand off again, Hannah Winterbourne, um, who was uh, an officer captain in, I think, the World Logistics Corps, yeah, um, who transitioned um, during her service. So I think there's been, there's been some fantastic ground made. Um, you know, there's some fantastic work going on within the veterans community to support veterans today who've, who've transitioned. Um, but still, you know, there's still these little things that really irritate and get in your way. And, you know, part of the work that I look to do is to try and get, you know, try and erase some of those things. Mm. Can I ask a question on the gender marker thing on the, on the birth certificate? If you yeah. didn't have a part, if you didn't have a partner, who would, who would, who would provide his signature then? No, sorry. So, um, what I need to do, so the process today is actually, is quite complex. First and foremost, um, you need a letter from your psychiatrist. So, I've, I, when I first transitioned, um, transgender, um, which or, or transsexuality, according to the International Medical Council code, 64.0, yeah, crazy, isn't it? Um, was a mental illness. So I was mentally ill, according to um, the, the medical protocols. So you need to see a psychiatrist. Um, if you applied to go to one of the gen, if you got, spoke to your GP, got an initial diagnosis, um, from a local psychiatric team. Remember the psychiatric team? 
and your GP then refers you to one of the gender um, clinics in the UK. I can't remember many, I think there's eight or nine maybe now. I can't remember exactly how many there are. Um, once they receive your application or your, your, your um, referral, today you can wait anywhere between two and four years to go and see them the first time. So that's between two and four years that you are literally in limbo, that you, 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 can, you can socially transition if you wish to do so, but you can't have any sanctioned medical treatment paid for by the NHS until you've done that. Anyway, where I was going to with that to answer your question is the GRC process is um, two letters from um, the, your gender clinic, from two separate psychiatrists to say, yep, you've transitioned. Um, they say a little bit more than that, but that's basically what it says. A letter from your surgeon, if you've chosen to have surgery, to, to describe specifically what surgery you've had. Um, I need to then get um, my, my um, name change and identity papers together. My wife has to sign um, to say that uh, the, she doesn't, um, she doesn't, what's the word I'm looking for? She accepts my transition and doesn't object to it. And these have all got to be signed by a solicitor. So you've got to go to the system and get these things done. Um, and then you've got to package all of that up along with a minimum of two years evidence of what they call real life experience. So living as a woman or as a man, package all that up and send it to a completely anonymous um, group of magistrates who decide on your case. Now they can decide to say, no, don't accept it, it's insufficient, send it back. Um, I had a friend that had her sent back only you know, a couple of weeks ago to say we need more of this and more of that. Um, and then you got to pay for it. <laughs> so you then got to pay to get this. And once it comes through, you then are able to apply using that gender recognition certificate for your new birth certificate. So on the birth certificate, does is it does it maintain what the you what sex you were born as and add a gender marker on there? Is that what it does? It just says female. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's it. So once you've got that, everything else is is um, you know you you are to all intents and purposes you're then legally female because let's look at this on the flip side. You know if um, somebody really annoyed me in the train one morning, I punched the lights out and not that I would do that type of thing, obviously, but if I did and I got arrested for, you know, for, you know, whatever you arrest me for and I got a prison sentence, technically I go to a male prison because right. I am legally still yeah. male. In, in my case, because I've, you know, had my surgery went through transition, etc. the likely desire to go to a female establishment, but technically, you can still go to male prison. If you die, you're still male. My military pension is still male. My name's changed my military pension, but it's still male. I cannot change that, my gender marker with the Ministry of Defence, until I get my gender recognition certificate. Which seems to me to be quite crazy because all I needed to get a passport with a female gender marker was a letter from my doctor, and that's it. That was it. It was the first thing I got. I got a new passport that went, you know, Mrs. Tara McLachlan. Um, yeah. yeah. I, 
Go on, it, sorry. It's, it's just it's it's crazy. Some of the, some of the, some of the things that we still have to do are archaic still today. Yeah, I th I'm <clears throat> see I. I try it's one of the just things I, I I think I think about trying to think about where I stand on it. I mean when I stand on it. I mean the, the I mean you mentioned about the prisons there. I think a lot of the I think a lot of the um what's the word resistance um to you know, like a fully fully being able to fully accept anyone that isn't what we would what you know, you describe as standard male, standard female. I think a lot of that resistance comes from people assuming or, or, or not understanding how that implement, is implemented practically. Like the prisons is a good example of that. Yeah. Um, but I've had a couple of light bulb moments in my head when I've been speaking to you. You know, this is really interesting because I'm changing my way and thinking on some things. You know, I was, I, I was thinking, I don't get in the weeds a bit, but I was, I, when I asked why I asked about the birth certificate, because I was thinking, well, there must be there must there has to be a, a need to to maintain the the birth sex on the, on the birth certificate but as you we were talking as you were talking thinking this actually is not a need this doesn't make a fucking difference i was thinking from like a medical perspective and things like that but it doesn't it doesn't make a difference it doesn't make a difference what about so so on the prison subject on the prison uh side of things the, the the gender split between how you know how males are uh, incarcerated and females are incarcerated and other things like the military what do you think is just generally i mean what do you think is the path forward for the practically pro pro providing what you know what is needed in society for to, to be able to practically accommodate and get rid of any of the challenges that you face at a practical level you mentioned the change rooms thing you know what what do you think of that side needs to change? Yeah, so the, the change room thing is actually it's it's a because it's a really important you know, topic. This is what comes yeah. straight into people's minds when they think about stuff like this. You know, no, absolutely. But the change room thing is actually um, a complete red herring, simply because the Equality Act. Yeah, the Equality Act that's that people are not even discussing. The Equality Act um, allows all of these things happen. So it allows me to go and go into you know, a, a changing room that I choose. Um, the, the Equality Act allows me to be transgender and be treated in law um, as a woman. Um, it stops a, an employer discriminating against me because I'm transgender. What has actually happened in the UK is because we, there's a a very strong case to make the process of obtaining a birth certificate much, much simpler. And a lot of, not a lot, there's a, a very small minority of quite vocal people coming out against making this process simpler. So let me give you an example. Um, if you decided to transition, Heaven forbid, if you decided to transition. What did you say and, that for? That's well, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> and, and you went, you went across, and you, you were living with your mum in Dublin, yeah? You, in under Irish law, four-page document, fill it out, get it witnessed, yeah? Send it off, and your birth certificate comes back. Now, we, the transgender community, were campaigning for that in the UK. So it's still a legal document, 
it is still binding. You are still um, declaring under oath that you're going to live as a female or a male um, for the rest of your life, by the way. So this is, you know, when we sign these things, there's a very strong piece in this is for the rest of your life, this is how you're going to live. Um, in Ireland, it's a four page document. I've downloaded it from the Irish um, government website. I've looked through it. It's a four page document, relatively simple. Anybody can do it. It doesn't cost anything. It may cost to get it signed, to get it witnessed, if you depend on who's witnessing it for you. Um, very simple and straightforward. Because we started campaigning for that in the UK, I say we, in the, the community in general, a lot of people come out very vocally against that, citing some of the reasons that I've spoken to you about already, that we're going to end up with men claiming the women in women's changing rooms. They've no intention of transitioning, but just claiming the women, because it's easier to do that. I'm legally a woman, I'm allowed in here, but you know, I'm, I'm stood here with, you know, um, looking extremely male. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's just such a red herring because that is never going to be the case. I mean, I wouldn't see anybody putting themselves through what I've gone through or what any other trans person goes through just to get access to a woman's space. This is not going to do it. And indeed, if they wanted to get access to that woman's space, they would do it anyway, regardless of what the law says, because they are criminals. Um, so I think that that's, that point is, you know, it's kind of, it is, there, there is this group that says we, 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 we shouldn't make it any easier. We should still make it really difficult um, for people to legally, and remember I'm talking about legally transitioning. End in social transition and live their whole life quite happily without a gender certificate. For me, it's important um, purely because of my military pension. So I want to make sure that the gender marker on that is correct. Um, but you know, apart from that, that's that's kind of when coming back to the, the, the topic of prisons, I think that is more difficult. Um, in one of this kind of voluntary roles that I um, I, I've stopped doing now, but I was doing for a couple of years. Um, I was working on the Isle of Wight um, at Parkhurst Prison um, as a volunteer. Um, Parkhurst is where they keep all of the Category 1 sex offenders. And there's a number of those sex offenders that are claiming to be transgender because a number of reasons. Some of them are probably or could potentially be genuine. Um, some of them are uh, looking just for reasons to get out of the male block. And they've actually got a small block, I think they've still got it there, that is where they house the transgender, um, male to female transgender prisoners. And I think some of them are genuine. I think the majority are probably not genuine, but that's purely my personal opinion. Um, and they get access to a whole bunch of other stuff um, around that. But in terms of the, the point, I think that there's a tipping point in your transition journey that should mean that you get housed uh, in a prison that's appropriate to the gender that you present, regardless of your legal gender. It's appropriate to gender. Now, most prison authorities um, or most prisons will accommodate that. There has been some instances where they've accommodated it and it's gone wrong, i.e. somebody presenting as female 
wanted in a female prison has um, done something we shouldn't have done, whatever that may be, um, and they've been reverted back to a male establishment. I think the cases of that happening are very, very few and far between. Um, but again, people make headlines of that tiny, tiny, tiny minority where it goes wrong. Um, I've never heard of a female to male prisoner going into a male establishment. I've not heard of that happening. It may have happened, but I haven't heard about it. But I think, I really think it should be down to the authority where you are to really go with how you present, who you are, what your lived history has been recently and accommodate you appropriately. I don't think there should be any specific hard and fast rule. Um, you know, I think if you pitched up and you went all the way through your sentencing, you know, um, in a suit and shirt and tie and claiming to be, and, and you know, just being male and all of a sudden claiming to be female when you're sentenced, I think that's kind of what we're trying to avoid is that element there. So it's, it's a tough one here, but I think it is something that does need still needs looking at in the UK. Um, you know, there, there's, there's other models in other countries, Italy, for example, again, I'm not sure if it's still the same as today, but Italy actually had one complete prison that was solely there for transgender prisoners. But in my mind, again, all that's doing is creating further segregation. Yeah. You know, I think, so the, I think, I think long-term the move I, I, just, and not just for, you know, the, the topic of tra uh, transgender people, but for other things to do to do with gender is to is going to just needs to be a move from away from having a different this for this gender and a different and a different this for this gender like a male prison a female prison it's the same with the military when i think about the you know the the practical side of allowing females to join infantry units the first thing that pops into my head is, oh my God, the amount of money it's going to cause, going to cost to do that. Never mind going on operations, but the change that the changes that will need to happen in the UK in terms of accommodation blocks and all, you know, uh, yeah, accommodation blocks, training facilities, all of all of that kind of stuff, is huge. But it's only it's only a massive issue if you're going to, like you said, segregate. The I think the answer is in terms of practical aspects of like facilities and stuff like that it's not segregate it's look don't even there's not there's, there isn't that just assume there's no genders this this is there are there are people and we need to provide for these people we need prisons for people <laughs> and people, exactly people. That. you come back to your point and i think that um i can't remember when the air force first said they would allow for new recruits i think it was 2018 but we didn't have the, the first recruit through i think it was 2019 and that delay was for everything you just mentioned. It was around, you know, what's a condition block look like, those type of things. Um, but I think generally, you know, I, I do see a move in the near future where all frontline units will be open to male or female. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be that long before that happens. So if we, if we actually, if you even think about it um, today, because the RAF regiment um, has, you know, a female gunner, we get actually two officers. So we get two JROC officers, junior regiment officers that are female because they went through the JROC course. Um, you know, so we could see, you know, frontline serving um, females, you know, 
there's nothing stopping them for selection, is there? Because from the regiment, nothing stopping them for selection. Um, so I think that now that that started to happen, I think that other units will start to um, accept uh, you know, applications from female recruits. Um, but I guess it is, it's those things, it's, it is, you know, what are we doing operations? You know, well, the Navy's managed that for, for years with WENs at sea. Um, are they still called WENs? No, they're not, are they? There's, but anyway, um, with women on, on, on surface ships, um, uh, you know, we've had female fight, fast jet pilots in the Air Force since, I think, 94, 95? So it's been a long time in coming uh, in moving forward. Um, but how about this one? Um, one of the, the big topics, I was actually discussing this with um, a group from the, the RAF um, LGBT plus group um, middle of last year. How do we deal with non-binary people within the Air Force? So non-binary, um, so my pronouns are she, her and hers. If you're non-binary, is probably they, theirs, that they use. And how do you accommodate uniform for non-binary people? How do you accommodate haircut for non-binary people? So, you know, once you start to think into this, there is, specifically in the military, there's a much larger group of considerations to look at when you're, you're talking specifically about the military. You know, how do you dress a non-binary person? Mom, sir, you know, how do you do that? And, and I think that's, you know, part of the, the process that they're going through at the moment is actually considering how they do that. And it's, it's active. These things here, they're active across the Army LGBT Forum, um, the uh, Navy Compass, which is the, the LGBT Forum with the Navy and the Air Force as well. So these are active discussions that are going on, at, I think probably a very senior level within the military to see how do we, how do we deal with this? How do we um, move forward you know, in modern society? Mm, interesting. I hadn't thought about some of those things. Yeah, that is interesting. But it's, I, do you know what? It's, uh, I mean, we, we start wrapping up in a minute, but yeah. we've <laughs> just, I mean, things are going the right way. You know, no one yeah. should, uh, no one should unnecessarily, you know, feel any less happy or uh, happy in life than they should you know than than they could be right and and it should certainly shouldn't be un unhappiness discontentment shouldn't be certainly shouldn't be caused by you know in, inadequacies in society in the way we deal with things you know but, and, but the mere fact that we can have a conversation like this you know yeah. completely comfortable on the conversation and feel happy enough to Put it out to the masses it's just it's, it's just good it's good positive it's positive it's, it's positive progress 100 percent. but also more importantly the topics need to be discussed rationally and properly you know to prompt people to think about things more the change room example is a one example there i understand that more much better now you know just yeah. and just because i'm thinking about it more from talking to you and and, and it, it's it's good to talk tara <laughs> it's good to talk no it, it absolutely is and i think you know part of it is just this this you know being out there being visible allowing people to ask the question as you said without feeling that you know i'm going to get <clears throat> upset or anything like that and i think you know we should more of us should be doing that more of us should be 
looking at answering those questions. And I think the big difference for me, Hugh, you know, kind of the last point, the big difference for me is, I think I understand when somebody is, has a genuine interest and if somebody's taking a piss. You know, if it's genuine interest, I'll answer any question. And I don't care, nothing's, nothing's out of bounds, I'll answer any question. Um, but I think it takes a bit of maturity to get to that point where you understand that, that, you know, who's being genuine, who's not being genuine. And the genuine people, you know, I surround myself with genuine people, not with idiots. As you know. Yeah, I'll take I'll, I'll take it as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> um, anything you wanted to cover that we haven't covered? No, that was great. It was a fantastic to chat to Hugh. Um, yeah, it, now it's just it's really, really good to to be on your podcast. And thank you very much for having me. We'll do it again, but in the studio next time. Yeah, yeah, in the studio next time when we're yeah. allowed. <laughs> Perfect. Been an absolute pleasure, Tara. Brilliant. Thanks, you. Appreciate it. Nice. Appreciate it. That's it. Thank you for listening to the H Hour podcast. Become a patron of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash HK podcast and get so you can pick up uh, H Hour merchandise as well. At just go to the shop, find the website, charliecharlie1.com and go to the shop. Easy. Thanks again to the sponsors. Veteran Trees. They're on Instagram. That's the place to get, that's the place to look at what Veteran Trees do. They make bespoke, customizable pieces for you out of wood. Handcrafted and or CNC crafted. Okay. Whatever you want. It can be as big as a flipping table. It can be as small as a, as a placemat. They will make you a customized piece. Maybe you see cat badge carved. The, the whole imagine this: a whole table, and the entire top of the table is car, carved in. Is your cat badge not like not like etched in? It's fucking carved in. The whole contours are your cat badge. The whole contours are I don't know what. Whatever you want, think about it. Plaques for the wall, leaving gifts, presents. Something for the bar wall, something for your mess, something for your garage. Get on the garage wall. Something, it's an alley on air from Veteran Trees. At Veteran underscore Trees on Instagram or email Dan directly. And the email address is, come on, Hugh, it is veterantrees at outlook.com. Thank you, Dan. Also, sponsoring the podcast today with Rugby for Heroes. Keep an eye on their social media. Okay, they fundraise for military charities, so you need to need to follow these guys. Okay, and they've got uh, they're managing to get some events underway very soon, even with this flipping pandemic going on. So they're at Rugby Number Four Heroes on social media, Twitter and Instagram. They're on Facebook, and the website is RugbyForHeroes.org. Thank you, Mike, and everybody there. And finally, the Ardbark Group, David St John Clare at the helm. Um, they deal in post-conflict areas. They exist to try and rid the world of unexploded ordnance and uh, and legacy mines, mine minefields. Okay, that's what they do through technical innovations, and they are cutting the mustard around the world. They also employ a significant percentage of military ex-military personnel within the Ardvark Group. So keep an eye on them. Ardvark Group is their website, and on social media they are the Ardvark Group. Search them on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thank you to all the sponsors. Thank you to you for listening. Please leave a review and I will catch you next time. Out.